Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Today, we share with you an episode from a different podcast, the American Law Institute's Reasonably Speaking. So here it is. Please enjoy. The views and opinions expressed on Reasonably Speaking are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of the American Law Institute or the speakers' organizations. The content presented in this broadcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. Please be advised that episodes of Reasonably Speaking explore complex and often sensitive legal topics and may contain mature content. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of Season 3 of the American Law Institute's podcast, Reasonably Speaking. Today, we are going to talk about the 2020 elections. Our panel of experts will begin by discussing the unprecedented legal volatility this year. Then they will answer questions about what happens after election night, including when are results official, if there is a dispute, how should it be resolved, and what are the lessons for future years. Our first panelist is Derek Muller of the University of Iowa College of Law. Derek's research and writing focus on election law, principally federalism and the role of states in the administration of elections. Before joining academia, he practiced law at Kirkland & Ellis in Chicago. Our second panelist is Fernita Tolson of USC Gould School of Law. Fernita's scholarship and teaching are focused in the areas of election law, constitutional law, legal history, and employment discrimination. She has written on a wide range of topics, including partisan gerrymandering, campaign finance reform, the Elections Clause, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the 14th and 15th Amendments. Her forthcoming book, In Congress We Trust, The Evolution of Federal Voting Rights Enforcement from the Founding to the Present, will be published later this year. We are also joined by Ned Foley. Ned is a professor as well as the Director of Election Law at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. In addition to teaching, Ned is a nationally recognized author and scholar. His latest book, titled Presidential Elections and Majority Rule, The Rise, Demise, and Potential Restoration of the Jeffersonian Electoral College, was published earlier this year. Ned also served as the reporter on the American Law Institute's Principles of the Law of Election Administration, Non-Precinct Voting and Resolution of Ballot Counting Disputes. Ned and Fernita co-host the podcast Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In the days leading up to November 3rd, their podcast will continue to break down complex legal issues for listeners who care about democracy and elections. You can find a link to this podcast on this episode page on the ALI website. Finally, the moderator for today's episode is Steve Hefner, a colleague of Ned's at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Steve also serves as the Director of Clinical Programs at Moritz, as well as the Director of the Moritz Legislation Clinic. He previously practiced law for five years in the Office of Senate Legal Counsel, U.S. Senate. His research interests are in legislative process issues and democratic theory, including election law. He served as the associate reporter on the American Law Institute's election administration principles. I will now turn over the microphone to Steve. Well, Franita, Derek, and Ned, here we are taking stock of this unprecedented election with, you know, about six weeks 
until election day itself with voting already having begun in a number of states. And why don't we talk at least for a few minutes off the top about what your sense is of how stable the mechanics of this election are at this point. There have been recent decisions just in the last days in several states that have affected the way in which absentee voting might be conducted. Pennsylvania with a state court decision allowing absentee ballots to be postmarked by uh, election day and, and counted if they are in by three days thereafter. Michigan the next day with a decision that allows absentee ballots to be postmarked by the day before election day, but still come in thereafter, which is different from how the state statute reads. Are these changes that are occurring at this stage in the game a kind of necessary response to the circumstances this year, or are they problematic because they are destabilizing people's understanding of what is going to be required? Fernita, let me ask you that question first. Um, so it's, it's a great question because one thing that I was struck by um, is the pictures coming out of Virginia where early voting started today, early in-person voting. Um, and I think the long lines that we saw and the people, the turnout is very exciting, right? Because it means that people are engaged and they're turning out to vote. But I think it's also driven by a lot of this uncertainty that we're seeing in these court cases and these changes with how votes will be tabulated and counted. Um, and so I, I do wonder, though, the extent to which this is different from prior years. So um, it may be different in a couple ways, right? We may see people turning out in huge numbers on the first day of early voting as a sign that that'll be the way that um, turnout will be for every, you know, every day of early voting. Um, and that may not have been true four years ago, right? There might, may have been more um, fewer people turning out at any given time, it might have been more space. This could have just be a sign that we're about to see unprecedented turnout during early voting. Um, but also, I wonder if it's different in a sense of every presidential election cycle, indeed every cycle, we have these last minute changes. And there'll be last minute changes on election day, right? So, so to what extent, I guess, is this different from what we've seen in prior years? I'm not convinced that we're quite there yet, right? I still sort of see this as um, very similar to litigation we would have seen in any um, other presidential year, but one key difference may just be volume, right? There, there's probably way more litigation in more states at this stage of the process than in prior years. And that may be driving some of this turnout that we're seeing in early voting where people are just confused and concerned. And they're like, let me just get this out of the way because I don't know what's going to happen. You know, what Frenita said reminded me of what it was like to be here in Ohio in 2004, where there was an intense amount of litigation uh, over the voting process up until the last minute. In fact, it, emergency litigation went to Justice Stevens at 3 a.m. on the uh, literally the night before election uh, day and then into that morning. Um, and so I think for Nita's point, it's a useful reminder that as chaotic and disorderly as it seems at the moment, it's not completely unprecedented. It does feel like the volume is more and something feels more stabilizing to me than 2004. So I want to reflect on that a little bit more, but um, it's a point very well taken. So thank you, Fernita. Yeah, and let me add, I think, you know, Steve, the way you sort of open was thinking about maybe how it might affect voter behavior, if it, it sort of injects certainty, uncertainty in the process. And, and Fernita pointed out, yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, there, there's 
eagerness on the first day of early voting, I, I think that'll drop off for you. I mean, maybe it'll be intense all the way through, right? But I think it's also, you know, some of the things you identified, Steve, and what these courts are doing, um, a lot of it is sort of the mechanics of counting votes under the hood type stuff, right? So it's a lot of things outside of voters' control or things they wouldn't even know about, right? So um, I think about, especially in Michigan, where, they, where in, in, the, in the recent opinion, the court was saying, listen, once the voters drop their ballot in the ballot box, um, they don't know, or in, into the mailbox, I shouldn't say the ballot box, in the mailbox, they don't know what happens at the end of the day. They don't know how long it takes for that ballot to get into the post office. And it's something perhaps outside of their control. There might be these delays that might arise. So um, I think there's confidence, I think, for voters to be able to participate in the front end. And there's probably some, there's certainly litigation dealing with uh, whether people can collect the ballots on behalf of unrelated folks to, to, to gather them and send them in, ballot harvesting, things like that. But, but a lot of things that we're seeing are also sort of back end things that we're not necessarily gonna, gonna change or alter voter behavior, except maybe to instill some confidence in the process. So it's, it's, it's been an interesting dynamic that there's a lot of post-election rules already being made well in advance of election day. Well, Derek raises an interesting point because that might that may actually be a difference this year, right? He's right that in normal circumstances, people drop off their ballots and then they don't think about it anymore. They've done it. Now people are starting to think about it, right? And that may be driving some of this in-person turnout, right? Because now they don't have full confidence in what happens after they drop the ballot off. Voting in person is a way for them to maintain more control over the process. And so this may be a year where you do have more uncertainty in the sense of voters feel more uncertain um, and that's driving their behavior. So the one additional point I was thinking about was there is this narrative out there in the public about that the system is not working, that it's chaotic, we won't know the answer, that it's going to break down this year. I hope that's not true, and I don't think it's necessarily true. So it, the, it worries me a little bit that even if the litigation isn't inherently destabilizing any more than in the past, the mere existence of it feeds into that narrative. And so if you've got candidates saying you can't trust the outcome, the process is broken, it's even rigged, um, the fact that the courts are changing the rules while people are doubting the process could feed the doubt and thereby make it harder to come together over the result once we have a result. Because people could say, well, the, the rules changed at the last minute, so who knows if we can trust the outcome. That worries me a little bit. Well, let me ask a related follow-up to that, which is the recent judicial activity that we were talking about that I introduced uh, may not be the last word. I mean, the Michigan decision is still just the trial court, so the appellate process could result in a change there. There are suggestions that there might be a um, federal attack, federal law-based attack on the Pennsylvania ruling. What do you each think the prospects are that even these particular decisions are still not the last word on the processes of Pennsylvania, Michigan? And, you know, I could use other examples from Ohio, which had some decisions just a few days before. How long will this go on this year? To some extent, I wonder if we are unrealistic in our expectations, Steve, <laughs> because 
Um, so there's, as, as you all know, the Purcell principle, you know, frowns on last minute changes to elections because they don't want to destabilize the status quo courts who come in to resolve these challenges. Yet these things get litigated to the 11th hour, right? In a lot of cases, the, the uh, opinion, depending on what level we are litigating that, is a destabilizing factor, right? It does sort of contribute to, you know, Ned's point about people feeling like the system is chaotic. I, I do wonder, is there a benefit that we get from sort of acknowledging that these are things that will be litigated to the last possible moment and that there might be a change in order to prime voters for the reality that, you know, what you thought, the, how, how you thought the system might work might not actually be the way that things transpire on election day, um, as opposed to pretending that courts are um, in the business of calling balls and strikes, not to be really inflammatory, but right, that's the Purcell principle. We're just gonna, you know, try to keep things the same, but it rarely works out that way. Sometimes it does, but generally speaking, even the very fact of litigation is to some extent destabilizing. I mean, it is, so there's no question that there, there is this timing issue that's happening, that a lot of the litigation is uh, short fuse in part because of coronavirus, or sometimes they've been waiting to see what the legislature will do, right? So there have been instances where the legislature has acted. So sometimes the, the litigation is responsive to legislative inaction. Um, and it, but I think that the final point that I'll raise here, and Steve, you sort of alluded to it, talking about these may not be the final word, you know, back in April, when we had this sort of challenge coming up before the Supreme Court about uh, the judicial decision in Wisconsin to accept some late received ballots, among other changes and the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision in RNC versus DNC says that went too far, you shouldn't have done that, it's too close in time to the election, send it back. But I think one of the important principles of that case was sort of the, the posture of the litigants where the litigants said, we're only challenging this one thing, we're not challenging all the other stuff that happened below. And I think it's gonna be interesting moving forward to see what kinds of things the litigants say listen, this is good enough for now, right? We're, we're, we're gonna take it, even though it's a trial court decision, we don't have the time, we don't have the, the, the opportunity cost to go appeal these things, let it be. Versus the handful of things they selectively say, we need to challenge, we need to continue to pursue, we need to figure out what kinds of rules are in place ahead of election day, or we, we need to sort of hit that tight window. So I, I think it's gonna be an interesting strategy in these sort of waning weeks of the election to see selective appeals uh, and, and in the litigation and what that leads to in terms of uh, appellate authority deciding it's too close in time, you should have, shouldn't change the rules at this point in time. So I think Derek makes a good point and it builds off of Fernita's observation about the Purcell principle. What struck me about the most recent round of decisions is it seems, it seems like the US Supreme Court was trying to send a signal starting in April and then some in the Wisconsin case and then in some other cases, basically saying no do not have litigation causing problems during this pandemic year. Uh, let the state officials try their best to run this, but you know, in extreme situations maybe, but really don't rock the boat. And yet the boat is really rocking right now, which sort of makes me wonder how much effectiveness the US Supreme Court has as the apex of our judicial system to call the shots. Because if all this rocking of the boat happens in the lower courts, the Supreme Court can't really stabilize things right away. So the, the chaos factor may be out of the Supreme Court's hands, even if it like, would like to avoid this chaos. And I guess I had sort of a similar 
kind of response or follow-up question to Fernita, and that is whether it's not just our expectations that are a little misplaced, but even whether the Purcell principle itself is an unrealistic principle. I mean, it is not a hard and fast principle that says as of X date, we will no longer entertain judicial challenges. And instead, given the kinds of pressures that exist, is it simply unreasonable to have something like the Purcell principle or does it still play some valuable role or is the principle just used to put a thumb on the scale in a particular direction? Yeah, I, so I'm not a big fan of the principle because I don't think that the principle is applied in a neutral manner, right? I think that the court, um, it, it's, it's basically a smokescreen for uh, what the court's preferences are. Uh, so to some extent, I do think that there is some value in the court's view of saying we are going to defer to the status quo, right? That just, it, that just feels less disruptive to say that. Um, but it fails to appreciate the fact that sometimes the status quo is disenfranchisement. And that's the problem that I have. I think it's the court's job to help police and protect the right to vote, not to necessarily protect the prerogatives of election officials um, to the extent that it requires some people not being able to enjoy their, um, their voting rights. Like if we're serious about voting, I think that the, th the thumb should be on a different part of the scale, honestly. And we also need to stop acting like Purcell is neutral. It's not, it's not necessarily neutral. The court can have this conversation in the context of balancing the benefits and burdens when it comes to exercising one's right to vote. Um, if it is a situation in which the regulation makes sense, even if some people are ultimately disenfranchised, that does not mean that um, the court has to necessarily strike down the, the regulation. Instead, it's more of an assessment about whether or not the regulation makes sense um, in light of the burdens on the right to vote, vote as opposed to saying that we're going to treat the status quo as, as if it's neutral. I mean, it just sounds very Lochner-esque to me. Well, or is it really a question of how much the last minute changes are in fact disruptive or, or to what extent do they in fact cause confusion to the voter? Maybe confusion that's... based on what though, Steve, right? They're just guessing. Like this sounds really confusing, right? Without any evidence that it's actually confusing. So we're gonna keep these people from voting and we're gonna treat the status quo as if it's some sort of like, you know, ah! I don't know if they captured that on radio, but ultimately <laughs> I just feel like this is a conversation where we need to start from a different place and we can still respect what state election, election officials are trying to do. Yeah, I think, so I agree, Fernanda. I think it's, I think it's important to think uh, in terms of this sort of evidence-based claim of what do last minute changes to election laws do? So we can think about this in a number of respects, right? It, there's no question that last minute changes to ballot access result in having to reprint the ballots, right? <laughs> uh, making mistakes like that. So there's, there's like consequences like that. Right. In terms of administration, oh yeah, yeah. I, I, um, and in terms of administration, you know, you train poll workers ahead of election day. And if you make changes to things like the voter ID system that you've put in place or what the poll books look like for inactive voters or signature verification, you know, there, there's some cost there. And then there's sort of this more abstract cost, maybe this is something Ned's gotten to earlier, thinking about like voter sort of lack of confidence and faith in the system, that it's someone stepping in and changing the rules, even if the courts might have a good reason for doing so or defending voting rights or providing opportunities for those. But the other side of it, and I think, again, this is why some of the coronavirus cases are different, is these are also situations where some of the like voter ID cases or things in the past we've talked about, I mean, they were litigated for two, three years, and sometimes the courts just sat on them, right? And they showed no urgency. 
And I think at least the Purcell principle has offered an opportunity both to litigants and courts to say, get your act together earlier on this stuff. If you think it's a problem, raise it. And of course you think it's something serious enough to change it, issue a decision. And so I do think there is at least some benefit <laughs> as sort of a salutary principle. I think it's getting, I think it's actually moving the courts a little bit faster. I, maybe not everywhere, but I think it does provide also that sort of kick in the pants to the courts to say, you got to move on these decisions. You can't sort of just issue something at the last minute. Now, we can fight about like what that window ought to look like, but I think that's also a benefit. I did one more point on the, on the ballot access cases before we move on, because I think I, I just want to underscore what Derek said and amplify it, because, um, you know, whether the Green Party should be on the ballot or not, it seems to me no sensible electoral system or legal system would be fighting over this at the time that we are now fighting over this, you know, uh, you know inside a Labor Day. And, and in fact, the Supreme Court in this Anderson case involving John Anderson from 1980 said basically 75 days before the election is when you could, should put these things to bed. So there is something wrong going on in our legal system that we're still litigating over this particular issue at this late date. And I haven't seen a reason that's coronavirus related that justifies that. I mean, in other words, structurally, the question of whether you have a third party or not is really independent of the pandemic and the virus. So I have to believe there's some other breakdown, whether it's party polarization or something, something is going wrong in our overall system that the ballot access cases are an unfortunate signal about. I, if, I, if I can just jump in briefly on that, I think, I think you're right. the, these ballot access cases, I mean, obviously they're, they're always with us, right? But there's no question that as we've moved early voting earlier, as we've, required printing of more ballots earlier to mail them out, those sort of like informal practices and deadlines of, of, of officials are running up against what might be the formal ballot access lines that have been in the law. And I think that we, we've sort of run into a place where state legislatures, they just need to move some of these deadlines back or Congress needs to provide some, I mean, some sort of uniformity about what this ought to look like in terms of the manner of holding elections. I think there's been this creep we've had over the, over the years of more and more early voting. It's perfectly fine, but it also means more and more sort of ballots have to be printed earlier, which getting to the pr printer earlier, which means we have to have firmer resolution of these things. So I think, I think the states do need to start thinking more concretely about these timing issues. I mean, some of these cases are going where, where, where courts are issuing decisions hours before counties said we have our drop dead deadline. And that, I think that absolutely, totally inappropriate. We should find yeah. a better solution. Can I chime in here uh, really quickly in response to, to Ned and um, Derek? I, so I agree. I agree. It depends on what regulation is at issue, what the factual circumstances are. I think I'm just challenging the framework in which we're having the conversation um, and a framework in which our baseline is we privilege the status quo. We don't have to talk about it like that, right? We can talk about all of the issues that Derek raises with, you know, now that we have more early voting, we have to print ballots sooner, states need to be more proactive of this. We can have this conversation in the context of the right to vote being fundamental. And in fact, I think one of my problems with the April decision um, out of Wisconsin was the fact that the conversation, because of the privilege, the, the, the privileging of the status quo, um, it, it placed the burden on voters um, to, try to overcome the difficulties of the mismanagement by the state 
in a way that made me uncomfortable, right? So, and they're talking about all of this in the context of the Purcell principle. Let's not just, let's not disturb the status quo, even though the status quo is that the state screwed up, right? There were people who didn't get their ballots in time and they, you know, faced the option of going and standing in line or being disenfranchised in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, and we, it, it just bothers me to read an opinion and it's like, well, you know, it, voters have the, the burden of overcoming mismanagement by the state instead of acknowledging that, hey, the status quo is a problem, the state screwed up, and maybe Congress do need to step in and normalize some of this so that we don't have some of these issues. But I just, I don't like the fact that we're having this con conversation in the context of Purcell. Well, let me shift away from the judicial changes late in this in the game to legislative changes and you know there's an argument that you've been making about the importance of legislatures holistically revisiting the whole timetable as well as all the mechanics but setting that aside what at this point do you expect or hope and those are very different questions that some state legislatures might yet do again at this relatively late stage to affect the way in which this election is conducted well if i can jump in the the i wouldn't want to do too much again because i do think there is some risk to confusion i think derek make a good point they, under the hood things that don't confuse voters may be okay and and and, and some of the mechanics at the back end of the process there's still enough time for some of the front end stuff we really the window is already closed. But the one rule in a couple of key states that was really important to shift is when uh, local officials can start processing the absentee ballots that have come back. Um, many of the states that have opened up absentee voting uh, to the no excuse system have also adopted what's known as pre-processing, checking voter registration, checking signatures where necessary, I voter ID where necessary. So all of that evaluation can happen before election day so that when the polls close you can have an immediate count of all the absentee ballots that have come in the whole month of october michigan and pennsylvania are two states that do not allow for that but instead basically pile up all these ballots not allowing them to be evaluated in this way until election day itself that's an unnecessary uh, inefficiency in the system. The secretaries of state and the local officials on a bipartisan basis in both states really want some legislative change on this and it hasn't happened yet. So that would be the one legislative thing that would be most advantageous in my view. Yeah, I think some states, you know, so I, I was just like in South Carolina just recently uh, enacted a statute allowing for no excuse absentee balloting, right? And so some states are moving in that direction where if we have absentee ballot rules or mail-in ballot rules where you require an excuse and the excuses can vary from state to state and how strictly they're adhered to can vary from state to state, right? I think there's no question that we've moved into a direction of saying maybe that the, the, the sort of notion that we have to come up with some exception to request a mail-in ballot is, is sort of washing away slowly, not in every place, not every jurisdiction. And we also know the trade-off, right? That voting early provides some opportunities or providing mail-in voting provides opportunities. It provides, you know, potentially more risks for errors, right? Higher error rate, higher failure of the ballots to get counted. So these are all sort of difficult trade-offs that the state is trying to make in these sort of times, uh, unprecedented times, if you will, 
Um, and I'm hoping that some of the, in some of these states, as Ned mentioned, you know, there are bipartisan consensuses about how to move forward. Um, but uh, the clock is ticking about whether or not very much can happen in, in the weeks ahead. I'm with Ned um, and, and Derek as well, to some extent, about this idea that um, there are trade-offs here that should, uh, that, sh that should encourage states to, to move with some caution in making these changes as we get closer to the election. But I do wonder, um, and Ned has actually been pushing back against me on this for, I guess, eight months now, about you know, what we can learn from this moment. I think that's an important part of the story, right? So some of this won't be done by the election, but that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. And I, and I hope that you know, we take this as a, an, an opportunity to have a broader conversation about how to better manage our elections. Because if anything, COVID-19 has um, really illustrated the, the shortcomings of our system. And all of us as people who study elections and study voting, we knew that there were problems, but I do think that the general public got a, a front row seat into you know, how messed up things can really, really get. So, to the, so I, I wouldn't necessarily advocate broad change in the next you know, 50 days or whatever it is, because it's just, I mean, we're really close, but I, I still think we need to continue the conversation and think about how we can do this moving forward. There's a better way. It doesn't have to be like this. Um, and I think, if anything, our current moment has taught us this. Well, I think, and I think Bush versus Gore was like a moment to pass the Help America Vote Act, right? It yeah. was sort of a, a saying, we've, we've seen some problems, let's do something to change it. And I think the question is, for the new Congress, for the new state legislatures, are we going to be looking at sort of small scale changes or even large scale changes sort of responsive to this? Or is it going to be kind of a who's ever in control has an omnibus we want to sort of roll everything together, in which case maybe nothing gets done, right? So I think that's also a question, right? There could be incrementalism and thinking about learning from this election and improving it versus uh, just reverting back to the status quo of, of frustration. Well, oh, wow. I like the idea. Sorry. I was just gonna follow up on Derek's point, but wow, even a small change. What if every state said you could start counting before election day? <laughs> Right, just like We're processing at least processing, before election. processing. Yes, processing before election day. That will be a. That's a small change that will have a huge impact. It doesn't even have to be. You know, let's go to a, a, a system where Congress has more oversight over our state election, state and federal elections, which is my preference. <laughs> well, we'll defer the postmortem conversation. What we really should learn after this election is over to another day. So let's turn our conversation to what you're expecting after election day in the period in the days and weeks just after the election is concluded what issues are you most worried about now i i think one of the one of the concerns i have is is less the routine process of sort of getting in the ballots some of the slow counting uh, you know, the things that sort of happen that maybe we're going to be hyper-focused on, you know, I, I'm less worried about sort of the nuts and bolts side of things. I'm worried, I think, more about uh, the litigation and the rhetoric pieces, right? The litigation, I think, uh, could potentially be a very significant problem. <laughs> um, it, was a, it was a big problem in Bush versus Gore, and I think it's, it, it could be magnified dramatically now that people have that still in their memories about what that looks like. And even legitimate litigation can look like a, a challenge of courts uh, altering the outcome of an election. So I think that's a real problem. 
And the other is sort of the rhetorical piece about uh, that, that election was rigged or stolen or fraudulent or whatever it might be. And, and whether that rhetoric leads to any sort of action is another question. But, you know, I think uh, rhetoric that undermines confidence in the process is, is the other piece I'm, I'm particularly concerned about after the election. So I, I can jump in here because I think the rhetoric point is a huge concern that I share as well, in part because I think it will also contribute to our inability to distinguish sort of normal administrative errors, right? I mean, the election officials are dealing with something that's pretty unprecedented in terms of volume of people who will be voting by mail and um, just trying to navigate the challenges posed by the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic, right? Um, but I think the rhetoric will be such, this rhetoric about rigging elections and the system being fraudulent will make it difficult to disaggregate sort of normal administrative errors, which will happen and happen every election um, from an actual election meltdown. I think that there'll just be this sense of panic that every little thing that happens is a sign that the system has somehow failed. And that's just simply not true. Yeah, no, I, I share that concern. Um, I guess I'll be happy, this may sound strange, but I'll be happy if on December 14th, when the Electoral College meets in every state, there is definitive resolution by then, whatever litigation might have happened up to that point or uncertainty, meaning that there's gonna be no more fighting after December 14th. So that's kind of one criteria in my mind. And then the second more ambitious, and this, this relates to the rhetoric point, is I'd like it to be settled not with the losing side simply believing that they have no choice but to accept defeat as a matter of political power and fiat, but they actually are willing to acknowledge that they weren't chosen. The other side was in fact the people's choice. Um, and if, you know, if we could get that kind of resolution even if it doesn't come till December, I think that's kind of good enough to go forward and, and allow you know, the new president and then the new Congress to govern with the, the mandate of a honest victory. Um, and, you know, and I guess if, if, if the candidates themselves aren't willing to say that the other side actually won and was the people's choice, if enough other players in the political system can say that so that that becomes you know widely accepted if not universally accepted that also feels to me me good enough so um you know that's what i'll be looking for and i worry as derek did that the litigation if it takes hold plus the rhetoric will prevent that kind of outcome but but i'm hoping that we could kind of keep the train on the track so to speak in that respect are there things that we can be doing now that would increase the chances that the train stays on the tracks, as you put it, in that period from November 3rd through December 14th? Well, the one thing that, I, and I'd be curious what others think about this, I, I, I think as lawyers of this system, we have the knowledge that there are legal rules to do the counting. And every state does a little bit differently, but there are fundamental principles involved. You know, an absentee ballot can't just walk into the election office and say, you must count me. It's gotta be verified by some process. 
these are all designed to um, protect the integrity of the system. It's this, the system actually does care about the integrity of itself as well as the opportunity that for voters to have the ability to cast a ballot. Um, and so that's why I think there should be, the public rhetoric should be trust the system unless there's evidence for distrust. There should not be distrust that's manufactured out of thin air that has no basis. We need an evidence-based evaluation. Uh, and the litig litigation can do that. I mean, the mere, as Derek said, the mere fact that there's a lawsuit doesn't mean the train has gone off the tracks unless it causes you to miss some deadlines that can't be missed, which I hope doesn't happen. But, but you know, I hope as lawyers, we can guide the public to understand what's going on so that we can say, look, you know, yes, there's some, some uncertainty, but don't panic. This is actually the system working. And if we have an answer, trust the answer unless somebody gives you a really good justification for not trusting it. It is an unfortunate feature of this particular election, more so than others that I've observed, that the rhetoric already has undermined the sense that the system generally works. Uh, and, and, you know, there's reason for us always to conduct close inspections and to do audits and to be open to fact-based criticism of a particular process. But it does bear, I think, our uh, observations and repeated stressing that the system is well tested and well designed and there's still room for improvements and we want to keep looking for ways to enhance what we do. Uh, but I like Ned's observation that unless there's evidence that something's not working, our default position sh should be that it is a, a reliable system. I don't know. I think it's challenging. Like I agree with Ned. I think that that should be our default that the system works, but it's, we are in a moment where Otherwise, smart people will assume that the evidence of absence is the evidence of its existence, right? Like, because there's no fraud, that means it just hasn't been detected. And what other area do you see that type of logic holds sway, right? But people believe that. And, and so when you're pushing up against that type of argument and, you know, and when normal rules don't apply, I think it's really, really difficult to disturb that. But that being said, all hope is not lost, right? I do like um, this language around election week or election month as opposed to election day, because I do think it conveys a sense that even if we don't know who won election night, that does not mean it's fraud. That doesn't mean that something's wrong. That just means that they're still counting and that's fine. Um, so I think, you know, maybe the answer... <laughs> I hate to say, maybe we have to counter speech with more speech, right? Maybe um, in the face of rhetoric about things being rigged or things being fraudulent, it's just really important to sort of emphasize those aspects of the system that are working. Yeah, they're counting. And part of the reason it's taking longer is because they are making sure that the signatures match. They are making sure that each ballot is verified. Just sort of emphasizing those aspects of the system that reinforce that not only is it working, but they're trying to make sure that the system maintains a sense of integrity, that the system was designed 
to have. As Ned mentions, election officials actually care about this thing. They want the system to work. And they also want to convey the sense that the, the, the system is honest. But so what, one concern I have thinking about this, this post-election day period, though, is especially as states move toward, and Pennsylvania and Michigan both did it, it uh, or, uh, federal judges or, or, or state judges <laughs> came out with decisions to this extent, saying that votes received after election day can be counted as long as they're postmarked or in Pennsylvania's case, there's no evidence otherwise suggesting that they were mailed after election day. And I think, you know, there are good reasons to think that you should have the ballots in on election day, in within three days, in within a week, whatever it is. Um, I'm a little concerned about first um, lack of confidence in the system of ballots trickling in. I mean, over two weeks is a long time and saying we don't even know how many. It's not that we're just processing ballots and we're trying to figure it out. We're overwhelmed. It's we don't even know how many ballots we've got until three, five, 10, 14 days after the election. That's a concerning sort of public information piece because we've also never had deadlines that go that long. Plus the volume I imagine we'll get after election day. And if we talk about election day, we can talk about election month maybe as counting, but, but, it, it, but receiving them after is a concern. The counting. other concern, counting, yes. <laughs> the other concern I have is, is thinking about the, on the litigation side, um, if, if courts sort of change some of those rules after the election. And maybe we can talk about Roe versus Alabama and due process concerns. But I, I am a little bit worried about what happens when someone shows up and says, well, wait a minute. I know we have a rule in the state that says we accept all of the, 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 the ballots have to be here by election day. We've known for months about all of the concerns that we've had. But now we want to sue and say all the ballots received within the next three days, as long as they were postmarked on election day, or if not three days, seven days. And I worry about some of those post-election day challenges to invite sort of saying votes that would otherwise be excluded and are now supposed to be counted or processes that were previously not used are now being used. And I'm not sure what that looks like. And that is the, that, that is the, the most worrisome piece about the litigation. The pre-election stuff right now, I think we can all have sort of good faith disagreements about the best or worst approaches. But I think I, I, I get really nervous about changes after election day and the litigation posture there. Well, let me use that to transition to one more topic I'd like us to talk about today. Uh, you know, we've observed how the amount of litigation may be larger in volume, but that we've seen plenty of litigation in the past and it's sort of par for the course in high stakes elections. Um, but nonetheless, there does seem to be something about this election in which the rhetoric and potentially some of the legal fighting itself is threatening the underlying system. That it's not just about the outcome of this election, but that it's creating a, a genuine threat, at least the argument can be made, to our democratic process. And in fact, Dan Coates just published a, an op-ed, the former director of national intelligence for President Trump, making that point, making that point that what's at stake this election in a way that wasn't true in previous elections is not just which party will control the White House, not just which candidate will win, but, but whether we will emerge at the back end with a 
democratic process that remain that remains functional, that remains reliable. And I'd like to hear your thoughts about to what extent that's a real threat and what we should be doing if it is a real threat. Ned? Well, I do. I do think it's a concern, um, and I'm, I was applaud uh, Dan Coates's op-ed. I think that was um, very helpful uh, public uh, piece of communication. I, I don't want to be overly alarmist, I, and I, I, I worry about self-fulfilling prophecies. Uh, we've had strange. I mean, Frenita and I have had again an eight-month conversation in which, you know. I've been really helped by Frenita's perspective on re keeping reminding me that America wasn't really a fully functioning democracy until the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And we, you know, we had other claims to democracy and self-government and Republican form of government. I don't want to lose all of the history that leads up to the Voting Rights Act, but a lot of that was unfulfilled promises. So, uh, so we may be in a period of fragility in terms of democratic norms and, and some backsliding, which I hope doesn't happen. But, you know, if we get through this election and we improve civics education and we do some other changes, the sky may not fall. And I don't want to sort of assume that the sky is going to fall. I don't think we have to assume that the sky is going to fall, but we have to concede that it might. <laughs> As you can see, I am the more alarmist party <laughs> between me and Ned. But uh, uh, yeah, nothing's guaranteed, right? And uh, to be honest, I know everyone was applauding this op-ed with the commission and everything. We love a commission. We love a commission to study something because we think something gonna change in response to this commission. I'm not just, this, that ain't gonna work no more. We have reached a moment where we need to come up with something else. If anything, Ben Ginsburg's op-ed from a few weeks ago resonated more with me because at least he's calling a spade a spade by saying like, look, we need to stop saying that the system is fraudulent and rigged, right? There's very little evidence of that. Like that, we need to see more rhetoric like that from both sides. You know, we always have a commission in response to every election. You know, let's study this. We study it half to death, even though we already, we already have a diagnosis. We know what the problem is. The problem is the imperfection of American democracy and we're working progress process we need to put the work in and we haven't been putting the work in we just go from election to election assuming that everything will work out okay the sky might fall i am willing to say i don't think that's alarmist i just think that's realistic um and so the question is so what do we do like what do we need to do if the sky doesn't fall right when we have election midterms in two years are we still going to sort of mosey along as if everything is okay or are we going to acknowledge that our system is broken we need to fix it and we need to actively take steps to fix it um, because honestly, the, the Trump presidency and the response and everything that's going on with our politics is, is, is really just a symptom of a larger problem of the weaknesses in our system. Um, we can't, we need to stop pointing to individual people as the problem, recognize they're just a part of it, and, and start really taking a close look at how to fix our democracy. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the, the Dan Coates op-ed gets at, I think, a some, some narrow and specific concerns, I think, too, in thinking about the, the, the trust in the, in the process. I mean, it's, it's dealing especially thinking about um, uh, that, that it's not 
international interference, foreign interference, foreign manipulation of votes, things like that. Right? And there's a there's a lot of rhetoric about those kinds of concerns. Um, I think I think there's there's good evidence to suggest the the ballots were not altered in the 2016 election. I think the states and DHS are moving in a better direction, a cooperative direction for this election. Does that need to be publicized more? Maybe that's something we want to worry about. Uh, what kinds of sort of subversive international efforts are there to sort of from Russia and China on behalf of Donald Trump, Joe Biden? Yeah, I mean, there's there's just inevitable sort of omnipresent questions that the Senate has been investigating now for the last four years. I feel like the Senate is issuing like a, a report every six months on this to describe what's happening to Fernita's point. Like we love our commissions and do these kinds of things, right? So, but I, I think it's hard, no matter what kind of a commission gets together and says, you know what, I feel like the, the voting machines in Wisconsin were not hacked. Uh, it's just, that's a, it's a tough pill to swallow for some folks, right? Um, and I and I'm afraid I just I don't have a great a great answer to that. We can put all the most brilliant minds in the room together to 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 reach a consensus on that. But as Fernita said, I mean maybe it is just we need people coming out on the rhetoric piece ex ante and ex post. I find myself wondering if the most valuable thing of the Dan Coates op-ed is not the possibility of a commission but is simply going on record as saying that the rhetoric has the potential to be incredibly damaging and the rhetoric without facts will destroy our system. And just to take that as a cautionary note. Two quick points. One is if, if we don't have resolution by December 14, and we still have two claims to victory after that date headed to Congress on January 6th, I do think we'll need a commission for a short-term resolution. I, well, it depends. If, if, if it's absolutely clear that one party controls both sides of Congress, then maybe you don't need a commission to, to have resolution for this election. But if we have a divided Congress and two claims to the presidency, you know, that I, 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 we, we need some help getting through that process. Um, and hopefully we'll avoid that. But so, so I think that Coates's argument is useful just on that narrow piece. Long-term, I'm more sympathetic to Fernita's point that we need more Ben Ginsburg's uh, coming out uh, and, and changing our, the nature of, our, of what bipartisanship or nonpartisanship might, might mean because it's, ultimately it's impossible for one party to hold up a two-party system. <laughs> Right. You know, if, if you have one party basically believing in democracy, small d democracy, and the other party doesn't, and they can't even agree to that, that's just a, an unstable system. And I don't know that a commission solves that long term problem. Um, I think that's a much bigger, harder conversation uh, and an important one. Um, so I would say commission in the short term, if necessary, in the long term, a big rethink about the commitment to, to two-party competitive politics. Ned, on the short-term point, uh, I take it what you're thinking of there is something different from a study commission. It would be a commission that has some sort of mandate to issue guidance. Uh, I mean, maybe not 
you know, obviously not binding, but it's just more than something to be studied, I take it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the, the, and, and uh, I know that, uh, you know, all four of us in different forums have talked about different aspects of this, but just to get us all on the same page for this conversation, you know, we're all hoping it's a very low probability of a very bad situation, which would be on January 6th, uh, you know, both parties believe they've won the presidency. One party controls the Senate, the other party controls the House of Representatives, and the two parties don't agree on how to interpret the existing law on what Congress should do with respect to those competing claims. And if you know that's a real risk of a stalemate, and I think you know a commission could help. It wouldn't have mandatory authority, but it might be able to guide congressional leadership in both chambers and in both parties on how to avoid that stalemate so that we have resolution by January 20th. I mean, I'd be curious as to what uh, Derek and Fernita and you, Steve, thought just on that narrower question. I mean, I, I guess I'm only skeptical because uh, something like that was tried in 1876 and didn't seem to, <laughs> didn't seem to work so well, right? I mean, I don't know that um, you can form a commission that uh, is going to solve the problems of the dysfunction in Congress, right? If you punt it off to the commission, I think you just sort of move it one step removed uh, and you, you yield some of the same problems. But, but I don't know. I just, maybe, maybe I just am not thinking as much about the low probability of that. So I keep thinking, well, we should have some certainty by December 14th and I'll feel, I'll feel better about it then. Yeah, my only response is that I'll just be saying the election administrator prayer, right? Don't let it be close. <laughs> because I don't know, I, I think our, our level of polarization is such that even if we have a commission, it'll become politicized. And I just worry about that. Um, it's just, this, this moment just feels different to me, Ned. Like, I, you know, if we were having this conversation in 2016 about things to do if we don't have resolution, I think I would be like, yeah, commission. And now I'm just like, no, we need something else <laughs> to, to try to get us past this moment. Um, so I think our best bet, I'm just like, please don't let it be close. Please don't let us be in a situation where we do have to um, entertain these very difficult questions about how do we get past our differences at a crucial point in time, at an election time, when we couldn't even do it in the four years preceding the election. I mean, and it just, that is incredibly terrifying to me. And so, um, I don't know, you may be right. A commission may help wade through some of the issues that are, uh, would otherwise be unresolved, but I'm just not certain that it would operate in that space in this moment. Well, it's been great to be with all three of you. I think we're all in agreement that uh, it will be a great relief if by December 14th, the outcome is clear that we should not expect for that clarity by November 3rd. Um, and that if it's still not clear on November 14th, then we have our work cut out for us. And we've also laid a foundation for some uh, future conversations at some point in some fashion, thinking about lessons to be learned about the mechanics of the election. Uh, and then a broader question just about the way in which um, all of us might be engaged in promoting robust democratic processes as we move forward. So with that, thank you. 
Be well. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Reasonably Speaking. Visit ALI.org to learn more about this important topic and our speakers. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Reasonably Speaking is produced by the American Law Institute with audio engineering by Kathleen Morton and digital editing by Sarah Ferrero. Podcast episodes are moderated by Jennifer Marinigo, and I'm Sean Kellum. Thank you.